morning again, everybody. Glad to see you here this morning. I hope that you had a, a good week. Um, I have to say I was a little taken aback last week after the message at uh, some of the feedback or the response for the series that we're going to be kind of undertaking and just the general excitement about talking about some of these topics. Absolutely no pressure at all on me to... Uh, present that but it was good to see that response um, and obviously you know I'm not gonna be able to get into every specific situation that some of us might be facing um, but I'm hoping that as we go through this we can find the hope that we have in the Lord through studying some of these passages and having some of these conversations about what's going on in the culture to understand some of these obstacles a little better that we face as Christians as believers individually and as a church, um, you know, hoping to have some of those conversations, to make some of those connections, um, equipping and discipling one another, praying for one another as we go through some of the hardships or some of the things that we face. Now, as just kind of a reminder of what we talked about last week, we talked about some of the obstacles uh, that we as a church can face. I want to reiterate that there are different levels in which we can face some of these things, uh, individually, corporately, uh, societally, uh, even nationally. So when we talk about some of these things, just know that there's different levels that these things can apply, and we'll touch on those a little bit each week um, as we go through it. Uh, last week, we talked about the issue of spiritual pride when it comes to idolatry and also how we embrace the culture without proper care for the impact or the effect that it has on the gospel message. And I shared that, you know, how through each of these we must first look inward, inward at our own spiritual pride, not as a way to be more legalistic or narcissistic in our faith, but one that honestly looks at the idolatry in our life, in our culture, and how that could be influencing us. And then as believers, understanding how we need to repent and turn back to the Lord to address those things, to, to handle and to tackle idolatry that we see in our church, in our lives, in our communities. So there's different levels in which we can understand these things. And I think that Jesus' teaching can apply when he talks about, you know, take the log out of your own eye before you attempt to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's a good principle to understand as we're going through some of these obstacles that we see. Um, and understanding that, you know what, as believers, we're going through that sanctification process. And even though we might have victory in some areas in our life with some of these things, it might not be 100%. So as we're able to be more open and have some of those conversations, honestly, we can help walk through uh, life together in an accountability, mutual accountability format. Um, and as I've been preparing for the next several messages, you know, I, I struggled about how to separate some of these topics because a lot of them kind of go together or including some of the popular secular, secular narratives that we see. So some of that will be included as well. Um, just know that there's going to probably be some overlap. Some of the things I say one week, we might back up a little bit and catch this following week just to make some of that connection happen a little bit more because when we face some of these things in culture, it's never just one thing that's just kind of separated and nice, neat, and clean. It's kind of just a hodgepodge of everything mixed together. So we want to be kind of prepared for that. Um, 
And, you know, I think also one of the things that needs to be addressed is that as we go through some of these topics, we need to be sensitive in terms of how we're understanding some of these things. Um, you know, for some of us, some of these messages might be hard to listen to. And I get that. And that's okay. You know, it's great to stand on the side of truth, to espouse what the Bible says uh, in a matter-of-fact way until it's your child. Then it gets a little bit harder. Even as it's hard, we understand that we don't sway from the truth, we don't capitulate to the culture, but rather as you approach these topics, it's no longer from a high horse standpoint where we're just shouting down different trite examples or verses from scripture. There's pain, there's grieving, there's hardship mixed in. And sometimes those verses, as true as they might be, is they come off as more trite because there's not processing that can go in. There's not time, there's not space that's given to actually walk through that hardship that you might be facing. So just know that as we go through some of these topics, that there are people within this body that are dealing with things in very difficult ways that we don't all know about. So just kind of understand that as we go through. My hope is to, to walk through these things with truth and gentleness so that we can see the, the hope and the truth that God offers us in a compassionate way. So with that said for today, we're going to tackle another obstacle that we face in dealing with the culture, and that is one of attention. Now, believe it or not, I used to be a nerdy kid growing up. I know, it's hard to see. I'm, I wasn't always this cool, suave self that I am. I was rocking the 90s bowl cut with about a half a bottle of gel to where if you just went like this, it would probably break the hair off. <laughs> you know, I, I, would, I would pick on girls at recess just to get their attention. You know, I would do all kinds of things to bring attention to myself, hence my humor. I think that's where I get a lot of that from. But in their eyes... I was irrelevant. I didn't matter. You know, and in the same way, for our obstacle for the church that we face, how do we get people to pay attention to the gospel message or to us when we're talking about God when they find it irrelevant? You know, we look at all kinds of different styles of church in America. We see a lot of different takes on what it means to be relevant or how to try to bring attention to the word of God. I think our minds perhaps go to some more of the negative examples that we see, whether that's in the mega church standpoints and having rocks, rock shows and, and things like that, or even on the opposite end of the spectrum and Westboro Baptist and the, the types of um, picketing that they would do at different funerals. And maybe we begin to think about this question and we wonder about how can we grasp the tension of those around us. Especially as we talked about last week, when it's more and more common that the culture around us has no clue or no knowledge about God or spiritual or religious things altogether. They're increasing, increasingly unaware about God and religion. You know, listening to Stephen and Lori 
on Friday presents what they're doing in their ministry in Africa. I thought, man, that's, that's some awesome, relevant ways to meet the needs of the people around them in terms of teaching them how to farm, in terms of dealing with the demonization that's going on in their lives. And as I was reading in the scriptures this week, there are a lot of instances that kind of spoke to this issue about attention that is given to God, um, whether that's good or bad. And when you have to pare down from a lot of different passages, it gets difficult. So just know that what we go over today is not going to be exhaustive. <coughs> Excuse me. But I want to start by looking at the story of Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. Um, it's going to be a little bit longer section for today that we're going to read, and we're going to take a little tour of Scripture. Um, so for today, I'm just going to have us stay seated as we read the Word of God. But I'm going to start in chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 22. All right, so it says, So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, and I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at this entrance, shut the door, 
Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, daughters, or sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city that, or the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. Father, as we go to your word today, I just pray that you would help us to, to gain an understanding of the importance and the urgency that you have set before us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So perhaps you're a little familiar with the story of Lot and Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps you're familiar with the pleadings that Abraham have, taking it all the way down to ten people. The attitudes, the corruption of the men of the city to want to know the angels. The sulfur, the fire that rained down to wipe out these cities to judge the people. And again, just like as last week, we can read over this story and very quickly make some applications to maybe some cities in America that we think, well, pretty soon God's going to have to judge this city because it's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, think, maybe you think about the heart of the people that are here. And you wonder, how can they be so far away from the Lord? How can you get the attention of the people that are so wicked, that are in Sodom and Gomorrah? How can the gospel message impact such a rejection? You know, and, and just kind of an overarching theme of this story, kind of looking at it and just giving some highlights. 
verse 11 of chapter 19. For the first time in a while, as I am writing messages, you get these burdens, you get these thoughts that come into your heart and mind. And for this time, it was such a great burden that I had as I wrote about this verse. You know, I looked for different highlights, things that I wanted to emphasize, and I paused several times as I read over this verse. I got stuck on how great their wickedness was. You know, you, you, you go back up to verse 9, and you see how they're trying to break down the door. And then in verse 10, they are struck with blindness. Have you ever thought that that is a mercy or a grace from God to stop them from the wickedness that they're wanting to do? But then you look at verse 11. You know, they're, they're in this rage, they're in this, this lust for fleshly desires to the point that they wear themselves out looking for the door. You know, I don't think that they're looking for the door so that they can be healed of this blindness. You know, even being struck blind is not going to satiate their cravings, their depraved nature. They're just, they're headlong into it in terms of that wickedness. And as I read this, my heart was burdened for that type of lostness, that type of despair, to where it's only by the grace of God that I'm not in that same place. How can the attention to the wicked be broken, or the attention that the wicked has be broken for the Lord? But again, as you begin to ask these questions and you apply it, you apply it to yourself first. Am I so different if, I, if I'm caught up in different sin? Do I chase after that idol, that pleasure so fervently? Am I so blinded with, with what I'm after that I'm walking in darkness and not in the light? See, sin is very destructive, and we tend to flirt and entertain it too much. Because, I mean, we're not this bad. We're not Sodom and Gomorrah bad. It's just a little sin. It's a respectable sin. Do we treat, do we treat our sanctification as irrelevant? His holiness as irrelevant? Another thing that stuck out in this passage was verse 14. After hearing about the coming destruction, Lot urgently goes to his future sons-in-law and he gives the message about the Lord, about what's going to happen. But this message is taken as a jest. It's not taken seriously. It's not given attention. It was irrelevant to them. Now in their case, they no longer had a hope. They had an opportunity to listen and they didn't. Starting with ourselves, perhaps we've heard that judgment's coming, that God will come again one day to judge the world. And he will judge the world on whether or not we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Maybe we're here sitting in this church for the thousandth time. And maybe that hasn't really sunk in because, you know what, I grew up in the church. and Yeah, yeah, I get it. I understand. I've heard this message a hundred times. But you know, when that judgment comes, 
It's not tradition. It's not the fact that you went to church. It's not your parents' faith that saves you. For there is no other name other than the name of Jesus in which a person may be saved. Look inward first. Then, then think, how does this urgency by lot maybe relate to our own family members who do not know the Lord? The experiences, the conversations that we've had in the past where we've given the message of the Lord and it falls on deaf ears. We've given the message of the Lord and they take it as a jest or there's an argument that ensues. How do we pray for and reach those types of people that find the gospel message irrelevant compared to their own kingdoms that they've set up? You know, as you begin to contemplate that question, as you begin to answer those questions, maybe you then struggle because you can't really work out in your mind why non-Christians don't think more about God. They don't love Jesus because, I mean, Jesus is awesome. He came down into this world as a servant and gave his life for us. He's, he's so gracious. He's so great. Why don't they turn their lives over? And, you know, we think of those verses that the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And that gives us some reasoning for a little bit. But a lot of times that's also met with condemnation. Right? But that's my sister. That's my brother you're talking about. That's my parents that you're talking about. Do you see the urgency that's there when there's a connection that is made? But what about our neighbors? What about our coworkers? What about people in Minden or Council Bluffs? We don't have that same type of connection anymore. You know, I think that that's a well-designed plan by the enemy. You think about the connections and the relationships that we have anymore, they're just shallow. They're hollow things of what they used to be in terms of friendships. And when we don't have that connection with someone, we don't have that urgency in our heart. We don't have that burden in our heart for the fact that they're lost. It's different when it's family because we care a little bit more. Even though, I mean, there's those other family members that you want them to, you know, maybe. But they're still family. And Jesus says to love your enemies. What kind of connections do we have to create that deeper urgency in our heart and mind for people to come to salvation? Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the end of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? 
If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you, because I have called and you have refused to listen. Have stretched out my hand and no one was heeded, has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then you will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have, would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So, I mean, obviously there's going to be an obvious judgment that is coming for those who hate knowledge, who do not fear the Lord. We know the ending of that story, right? We know what's coming. We know the coming judgment on, on the earth. Now, unlike Lot, we don't know if that's going to be tomorrow. Lot knew that that was going to be tomorrow. But as ambassadors for Christ, we're tasked to go to the world to tell of the good news, that there is salvation in the person of Jesus. But as I've said, people don't seem to care. And the church seems to be at a loss of what to do about it, whether or not to care, whether or not to evangelize, whether or not to isolate or to engage. Churches tend to be cautious and hesitant in their approaches, offended if they're not listened to and judgmental of what other churches are doing. Many times, churches are struggling through what to do and they're focusing on the, the wrong area. They try to come up with some program to entertain people or to just get people in the door. And then, once they're in the door, they'll be able to know Jesus. If I can just get them to the church, then the pastor will solve all of my problems. Other times, the church will focus just on its members and not the community. Who cares if we're irrelevant? We're not about the culture anyway. You know, I think both of those types of stances miss the point of what it means to be a church. On one side of the spectrum, you're selling out to the culture and, and the attention and you're trying to garner something that just seems to be for the church. Where the attention needs to be is on God. On the other side of the spectrum, perhaps where you're a little bit more isolated, you're anticipating for people to come through your doors. And you end up doing nothing. And eventually you'll end up dying off as a church because there's no connection or engagement to the community at large. Again, trying to understand where the balance is and living in that tension. It's difficult, but it's something that needs to be talked about. In his book, Choosing Your Faith, Mark Middleberg says that more people spend time doing research on a bicycle or car that they will buy or plants that they will plant in their garden than they do on the monumental subject of eternity. And when I read that quote, I thought, where is the church? I mean, what are we doing for society to get to that type of point? Where you're going to do more research on what car you're going to buy 
than God or eternity. You know, and I, and I know in my life there's been definite times where I just, I'm patting myself on the back saying, it's okay, it's not your fault. You've done what you could. Really? Have I? I mean, has there been that type of urgency? Or is that just my selfish pride coming out because maybe I want to be cloistered up in my home or spend time with my kids and, and say that I'm doing what I need to be doing instead of reaching out to my neighbors who might not know Jesus? What are the fruits of my decisions looking like in terms of advancing my kingdom or God's kingdom? And I need to ask that question. Is the gospel relevant enough in my life to be such an active thing beyond salvation that it in turn impacts the connections that I have with other people? How relevant is God in my own life? You think about the connections that you have with people, the conversations when you meet someone, how often does the Lord come up? What's the normal questions? Hey, what do you do for a living? You got kids? You married? Where do you live? What kind of hobbies do you like? Sure, those are, those are nice connections to be able to get a foot in the door. But does the gospel impact my life enough to where that is my life? Or is it my kids? Is it my work? Where am I spending the majority of my time? Turn over to James chapter 2 with me. James chapter 2, I'm going to read the first seven verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen things who are poor, chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones or not are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You know, and as I was asking a lot of different questions this week, and I was facing some of these convictions from the Lord for myself and for the church in regards to how I'm viewing others um, and the lost around me, I, I questioned this issue of favoritism. I questioned what is the lost's objections that they have, you know, kind of building off of last week and how our society is more and more increasing in terms of their devoid of knowledge of God. But, you know, you remember in the past how you can just connect those spiritual dots for people, right? And then they could understand a little bit of what you're talking about and how those spiritual dots aren't really there in an increasing fashion today. So how can we effectively reach people 
when they find it so irrelevant? How can I not have a heart of favoritism towards those people that are so far away from God? And instead, maybe I just want to hang out with my Christian friends. And again, where is that balance to understand? And as a pastor, begin to think as a church. As a church, how are we relevant? Now, stick with me for a moment. And let me just maybe push past some of the defenses that might have been up the moment I said relevance. Relevance is not our goal. Understand that. Hear me say that. But a connection with somebody who is lost that is relevant matters. Now this thought is going to tie into our message next week when we talk about attraction. You see, one thing that I have consistently seen in churches that are dwindling or dying is this belief that we're not doing anything wrong. It's because everyone else doesn't want to hear the truth. We're doing things in the right way and everyone else is doing it wrong. I've seen that in so many different churches. And in my prayer time this week, I was praying against that type of heart or that type of attitude and belief for anybody. And I want you to hear it from me that I'm not so arrogant or conceited to think that I don't fail in my positions or I don't say things that are wrong. I know that I make mistakes. I know that I will continue to make mistakes. So as I'm giving this message, I'm trying to, don't think I'm trying to push us towards this relevance in the way that the world believes it, but instead trying to help us question what we're doing and who we are in terms of how we are serving the Lord how we are assessing being his hands and feet to accomplish the Great Commission. Because a lot of times the church messages can be very obscure. Uh, we fail a lot of times in how we are communicating, and we could be our own worst enemies in those ways. Think about new people that come to this church, for example. Now, I would say from some of the things that I've heard that we are welcoming, um, people have commented on how they can really feel the Spirit of God moving within this body, that we're generous, that we have a time of prayer, and that that really stands out. Those are great reviews. You know, but what would you say is the experience of a new person as they're coming into this body? Usually it takes a few weeks for them to get a little comfortable, uh, but for the most part, we also have to understand that for new people that come into this body, I would say 98% of them are church shopping. They're already professed Christians. Can you think of the last time that a true non-believer came through the doors? I can think of one in the last two or three years that has stuck around. Now, and again, there's always the debate of whether or not everybody in church is truly saved. I don't like to get into those types of debates. When you think about the new people that come in, most of the time they're coming from a different church. So that's a different starting block. When you think of somebody that's lost, that comes into your body, what do you think that they're experiencing? They come in and hear some guy rambling for 40 minutes? No clue what's being talked about. Songs that they don't understand or have never heard. 
circles of people that get together that are tight and somewhat probably closed. Now one defense is, well, the church is for the believers. I get that. I'm on board with that. But one thing that struck me and convicted me this week was an area that I fail in too often. I'm quick to defend myself and my actions, to paint myself in a better light, rather than being the servant that the Lord calls me to be. Rather than understanding the urgency and the need to reach the lost with the gospel message. You know, an author, Michael Green, he estimated that 80% or more of evangelism in the early church was done by not by ministers or evangelists, but by ordinary Christians explaining themselves to their network of close friends and families where people paid attention to the gospel because someone they knew well, worked with, or perhaps loved, spoke to them about it. And one of the hardest things in church today is to actually encourage a significant percentage of Christians to actively live missionally in their daily lives and relationships. It's something that I preach on often. It's something that I had always loved about the Alliance, where once you leave those doors, that is your mission field. Understanding the call that we all have on our hearts and minds. And I come back to the questions that I also like to ask. You know, where are you in the word this week? Who are you talking to about the gospel message? Who are you praying for to receive salvation? In discipling and equipping type ways, being able to come alongside one another and support one another. But one thing that we have to understand as a church, as individual believers, we have to have relationships with unbelievers in order to confront them with problems of sin, which hopefully will bring about conversions. What are the relationships that you currently have with unbelievers? You know, an example that the Lord gave me a reminder this week, kind of a callback to earlier times in my walk when I was working in the factories, and I had so many non-believers that were just kind of put right on my lap, and so many conversations were had, and it was such an amazing time to see God work within that workplace, and it happened so naturally. It was such a, a wonderful time in my life. Now, obviously, things change, and as I've grown, I've become a pastor, and things are a little bit different. You know, it's more so assumed that I'm walking with the Lord. There's this assumed reverence that's given just because of the title, which I dislike. You know, it was, it was funny. I was talking to a guy this week, um, rougher guy, definitely used some coarse language. And uh, we're sitting there talking across the desk, and he's, he says, oh, I got a joke for you. Wait, are you Catholic? I'm like, well, actually, I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, well, never mind then. Ne never mind. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I like jokes, but, you know, I definitely appreciate you understanding the, the nature of the joke that you're about to tell me. But then as I shared that I was a pastor, he then shared part of his testimony with me. Again, you start thinking, it's like, hmm, is this genuine? But what he shared was how another pastor had grabbed a heart of his life or the, the heart in his life to where, you know, he grew up in, in a biking community, he was rough, and, and this pastor kept coming 
and he kept coming, and he kept coming, and he was consistent with the gospel message to where he understood the necessity for Christ. Now, obviously, some of that fruit is still not there, but at the same time, it was awesome to hear that testimony this week. And it just made me think back to those times that I had in, in the uh, factory to where you would have those types of questions where people would be asking is God relevant is Christianity re- relevant but you know you, you think about when they look at you and they know that you're a Christian they're watching every step that you take they're watching the words that come out of your mouth do you truly believe this is this something that you live are you or is it just something that you preach And you know, that whole question, is Christianity relevant? It's kind of a a misnomer to where it's not an accurate question because it gives this impression that we can just be walking down the supermarket aisle and just like, oh, Christianity, yeah, I'll take some of that this week. But you know, next week I got a game, so I'm not going to, yeah, I won't really follow it next week. You know, and it's, it's interesting. You see the ups and downs and the travels and the sicknesses and everything, and, and you wonder the the flow of church and and the impact that church has on people even within our body how important is it you know i think that we have it backwards in terms of where our focus is on relevance see relevance is a means to find a connection in order to get the person to who is truly relevant and that is god God is absolutely relevant in people's lives. And the urgency for us as believers is to make sure that people see that. Oz Guinness, an author, teacher, said that never have Christians pursued relevance more strenuously and yet never have Christians as today been more relevant. And even the churches which are trying to keep up with the secular entertainment, as if we could ever match secular entertainment, are just doing a very poor echo and not really impacting the culture. And we in the traditional churches, we don't really present very well, do we? To our community, that is a truth to which people ought to take seriously. See, what we should be doing and what people should be asking is this type of a question. How do you treat God? How do you honor God? That type of a question is bold. It's a biblical question because the emphasis is on his holiness and not our wants, not our desires. As we talked about last week, there's this lack of understanding with God to begin with. So we need to be able to make a connection with people in order to have the opportunity to share the gospel message and the good news, to speak the truth. Now this entire obstacle of attention or relevance and the way around it also assumes that as Christians we'll know enough about the Bible and our faith to engage in conversations. It also assumes that we will have relationships with non-believers. If that's not the case, then we need to make sure that we understand those steps. Whether that's going to Bible studies, whether that's being in the Word, whether that's having neighbors over for dinner, knocking on doors and having conversations. Because we have an impact within our radius, whether that's at work or whether that's in our neighborhoods, to reach people who are very unlikely to go to church themselves. 
to reach people for the gospel message that I will not have an opportunity to reach. That again is why we are called a priesthood of believers. You know, this, this connection, this, this relevance issue also revolves our own walk and our passion for God and that we are living what we are preaching. You know, when we look at history, Christians who have thought through and lived out their convictions have historically stopped the world in its tracks with revivals, with, with bringing people to Christ because Christians can give the gospel message and allow people to see the futility of their ways, to see the need that they have for a savior. And in your own life, I mean, think about those Christians that maybe you know who are all in for Christ. Those that where you understand in their life, Christ is the most important thing. Don't we appreciate that type of, that type of spirit, that type of heart, that type of impact in our own life? Do we aim for what they have? Or do we just settle for mediocrity? Do we just settle for the complacency and the so-so? How do we treat God? Is he relevant in our lives? Or do we just give him lip service on a Sunday morning? Is he your all in all? Because he is absolutely relevant. And if we want to see culture and the world change, it starts with us treating God for who he is. As a sovereign Lord, the Almighty, creators of heaven and earth. Understanding that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that creates an urgency and an imminence in our hearts and minds for those who are lost around us. I would say that that is pretty relevant. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to how our culture is behaving, as we look to how we are behaving, Lord, I, I continue to pray for repentance in my own life, in my own heart, for those times that you are second. Lord, I pray that you would continue to give convictions to those areas in our lives that, that we do not practice you as being Lord. Lord, I pray that you would continue to instruct us and show us a healthy balance of how to be in the world but not of the world. And I pray for the lost family members that we have I pray for the lost people that are within the communities that, in which we live and our workplaces. Lord, I pray for open doors and chances to have conversations and that we can walk forward confidently in the knowledge that we have of you. Lord, we all have fears. We all have worries about what to say. But Lord, help us to have a strong sense of who you are, of our own testimonies and what you have done for us so that our relationship with you can be seen because we live in a lost, broken, hurting world that is desperate for you. And you have given us the gospel message, Lord, to share with others. So I pray for those opportunities for each one of us this week and that we can come back next week celebrating your glorious son. 
Jesus' name I pray. Amen.